Welcome to Curve Beam Connect. Listen in monthly as we talk with doctors and experts in the field discussing innovations and insights into orthopedic imaging. Welcome to the Curve Beam Connect podcast, where we give doctors, patients, and anyone interested in healthcare and technology a look into how our solutions are changing medicine. I'm your host, Vinti Singh. I'm the director of marketing here at Curvebeam. Our guest this episode is heavily involved in upper extremity research and has received numerous honors and awards from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons and the American Society for Surgery of the Hand. Dr. Glenn Gaston is a hand surgeon with OrthoCarolina, one of the nation's leading sports medicine practices. He's based in Charlotte, North Carolina. He serves as the hand consultant for the Carolina Panthers and the Charlotte Hornets, as well as Hendrick Motorsports NASCAR team. He is also a member of the NFL Physician Society and serves on the NFL Hand, Wrist, and Elbow Subcommittee, uh, which is going to be the focus of our interview today. Welcome, Dr. Gaston. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great. So can we start by you explaining um, how the NFL uh, Physician Society is set up and specifically the NFL Musculoskeletal Committee? Uh, what do you do? Who are the members? Uh, just give us a brief introduction. Yeah, sure. So each NFL team has team physicians as well as team consultants that serve uh, on the NFL Physician Society and within it. From that, they've done a really good job of setting up various committees. It began really with the spine and head committee, and that was what was really driving a lot of the concussion research that you've heard a lot about. Subsequent to that, they developed a foot and ankle committee uh, that really did a good job of evaluating lower extremity injuries and looking at the effects of which shoes should you wear on which turf and things like that to really the goal, of course, being to protect the players. Mm-hmm. More recently, just in the last two years, we formed the hand, wrist and elbow subcommittee. And our charge is to look at injuries that affect the hand and wrist and review. Basically, we start with reviewing all the injuries that have occurred over the last several years mm-hmm. and trying to look for patterns. And then, of course, looking towards injury prevention being the goal. So there's four of us that serve on that committee, and it's been a pleasure and honor for me to get to be one of them. So how often does the hand, wrist, elbow subcommittee meet? We have an in-face meeting annually at the NFL Combine. So we all go to the NFL Combine, and there uh, is at that time is when we have our annual NFL Physician Society meeting, and the subcommittees will meet then. But then we have ongoing research studies, and so we have meetings probably around quarterly by the phone. Uh, to review data and discuss our plans and our goals of our committee. And do you have a term that you're going to serve on this committee, or uh, how how is it decided who is who actually sits on that? You know, right now we don't. We just formed about two years ago, and there's four of us that are on that, and uh, we haven't even gotten to the phase yet of determining when we're going to roll on and off the committees. But most of the committees have been pretty open in the uh, past in terms of people staying on them for fairly long periods of time as long as they're making good progress as a team. So it sounds like hand, wrist, and elbow is a relatively new committee uh, compared to, say, the concussion team or ACL tears. Can you talk about how it was decided that there should be a special subcommittee just for hand, wrist, and elbow? Yeah, you know, I think uh, just because those injuries didn't get as much attention in the past, uh, as you're aware, many injuries to the hand, people will still be able to play. They can put them in a cast, whereas if you have an ankle injury, they have more time off the game. And, of course, with concussions, even greater times off and more concern for the player's long-term well-being. 
So I think it just took a while to appreciate that these injuries were also of importance to the players and to the teams. And it was about four years ago that we began the discussions of maybe we should form one. And the NFL Player Society and uh, Physician Societies were very responsive. And so four of us got together who routinely attended the combines and set this committee up. So what are the key areas that the Handrest Elbow Subcommittee has focused on? What are some of the predominant injuries or trends that you're looking at? We had an interesting discussion in the very beginning of there's sort of two ways you can go. Do you go for what are the most common injuries, even if that means they're injuries that don't miss as much playtime? So there's common things like dislocated finger joints and broken metacarpals and broken bones within the hand that we uh, wanted to evaluate. But then we also wanted to look at some of those injuries that may be less common but more destructive, things that would be more likely to end a player's career or result in long-term arthritis or long-term issues for the players. So we've sort of broken it into two parts. One, we're looking at uh, what are called metacarpal fractures, which are just one of the more common broken bones in the hand, and looking at how, how long does it take players to recover from this? When is it safe to let them return to play? What's the optimal way of treating them? Because how we treat an NFL player is very different than how we treat the average weekend warrior. And to that end, how we treat an NFL quarterback may be very different than how we treat an NFL lineman, so if they're able to play in a cast or not. So we're trying to look at various factors for that. And then at the same time, there's some more significant injuries, such as ligament tears and a bone called the scaphoid that can be broken in the wrist, that if undertreated can lead to much more long-term morbidity for the player. Interesting. So I was reading a little bit. I saw that the NFL Medical Committee, they actually do a lot of extensive injury tracking and data tracking of injuries in every game uh, by position, um, even by day uh, played. So Thursday injuries versus Sunday injuries. Can you talk a little bit about how that injury data is tracked and how it's uh, recorded and used by your subcommittee and and the entire uh, medical committees? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, it's absolutely incredible. The NFL's really done an incredible job of devoting the resources needed to track it. And you're exactly right. Uh, Every single practice, every single game, every single injury to every single player is recorded. And it's down to what type of turf? Was it raining? And they have video footage uh, of virtually every injury that occurs uh, for us to even review. So something as simple as a laceration that just needs a stitch would be recorded all the way down to someone breaking their arm. And then Our committee basically takes the data at the end of each year, and we can look at it however we want. We typically break it down into, in order, what are the most common injuries to the arm that we see. And then we may choose certain injuries that we know, as I mentioned, uh, are devastating long-term and look at those specifically to see is there are trends that we can begin to identify. These injuries more often happen uh, in these types of plays. These injuries more often happen in these types of conditions. Therefore, we can start looking towards how can we prevent them. Can you provide an example of one of those more devastating injuries uh, where you've been able to figure out when that might be more likely and how it could potentially be prevented? Uh, The two that we're really looking at right now are one's called a scaphoid fracture Mm -hmm. and one called a scapholunate ligament injury. The scapholunate ligament is a critical ligament in the wrist, very similar to the ACL and the knee. 
And we know that if people injure that injury and it's not treated, uh, that it leads to long-term arthritis in the wrist and loss of function. Hmm. So those are two we're looking at now. And quite honestly, uh, because of the point we're at, we still haven't gotten to the phase where I can give you a, how do we prevent that yet? But that's what the real goal of the committee is. Mm-hmm. Now we're simply trying to put together uh, what's the frequency and what are the factors that seem to be associated with that injury. And then the next step would be the, how do we therefore prevent it? So this data that you're collecting, um, all the metrics, all the statistics, it sounds like it's pretty extensive. Um, Is there any way that, I know you said there's a big difference between a professional NFL uh, player and the circumstances they're in in your average weekend warrior, but is there anything that can be extrapolated from this data that could be applied to a larger patient population? Yeah, I think there eventually could be several things that come up um, through that. One would be, we learn a lot. If you look at advances that we see in sports medicine, a lot of the things that become uh, mainstream in the regular population were first introduced in the pro athletes. Hmm. Because what you see in pro athletes is people really wanting to push the boundaries of recovery. Mm -hmm. One week earlier of uh, being recovered makes a big difference. Things like uh, PRP injections, which you hear a lot of now for uh, the, the average weekend warrior who may have tennis elbow, a lot of that data was originally coming out of NFL athletes hmm. that were really pushing the envelope of trying to get healed faster. And so the use of PRP, the use of a lot of other biologic agents really uh, stems from our experience with pro athletes. Interesting. So you practice at Ortho Carolina. Is there anything that you've learned from sitting on the subcommittee that you've applied just day to day to patients that you're seeing coming in? What I've probably applied the most is you learn a lot just seeing how quickly are other physicians allowing their players to get back and what are the positives and negatives of that. So if we see a trend such as for this particular injury, players have been allowed to go back uh, as early as a week or two, but their re-injury rate was higher. Uh, then that makes me want to hold back that injury a little bit uh, from getting them back too early. Mm -hmm. And conversely, you learn a lot that you may be traditionally waiting about six weeks to return a player for a particular injury. But then you see in the data that there's several players that have gone back at week four and have done well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that probably influencing return to play times has been one of the areas I've learned the most. Mm -hmm. Um, Talking about return to play, and you had also mentioned scaphoid fractures earlier. So there have been studies that have shown that CT imaging could potentially show signs of bony healing if you do have a scaphoid fracture earlier than they would show up on x-ray. Sometimes the difference is a matter of of weeks. And if you're an NFL player, that can make a huge difference. But even for the average person, um, being able to take a cast off and returning to functionality sooner is better. Can you talk about, so you use the InReach uh, CT imaging system at uh, Ortho Carolina, which is the in-office CT scanner for um, hand, wrist, and elbow. Have you at all introduced that protocol of assessing uh, basically fracture healing for a non-displaced fracture on CT? Is that a protocol that you're using, and are you seeing that you're detecting it earlier? Yeah, the in-office CT has been a tremendous gain for us, and I use it a lot uh, in two various ways. The first is determining is something fractured or not, because scaphoid fractures, one of the problems is the x-rays right after the injury are very often normal, and you can't see the fracture line, which then you're faced with a difficult dilemma. Do you just assume it's not fractured and allow the player to play? 
do you hold them out? And so the ability to right then get a CT scan and make the determination, is it broken or not, has been huge. <laughs> and in our office, the average time from uh, when I just get an x-ray that's negative to when I order my CT and get that done has been about 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. So 12 minutes later, I have the answer as to whether or not this player has a scaphoid fracture. Mm -hmm. So that's been one huge area is just in determining is something broken or not. Secondly, to your point, it's been hugely helpful that at around the time where you assume the fracture would be healed, exactly as you mentioned, we know that these fractures are notoriously difficult to gauge healing on plain x-rays. Mm -hmm. So having the in-office CT has been tremendous, and I can get that right away when they come and assess how much healing do they have. And most of us will use the number of about 50%. Once that bone's about 50% healed, then we feel comfortable allowing the elite athletes to return. So mm -hmm. that's a determination that you really can't make without a CT scan. Additionally, a regular CT scan before we had the in-office scanner took a lot more time to coordinate, additional visits to do, which delays that player's return and has more radiation to them than the in-office CT scans that we're having. So that's, that's great to hear. So are you using that for your athletes as, as well as someone who may just suffer a scaphoid injury, say, you know, from a fall? Oh, yeah. So we use it. Uh, basically, it's become our modality of choice for <laughs> determining whether or not uh, someone has sustained a scaphoid fracture. And that's from exactly, as you said, the general population all the way up to the pro athlete and everybody in between. That's great. Taking it back to the research, uh, there was an article in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2008 that looked at uh, comprehensive data from um, NFL injuries of the hand, wrist, and elbow. And it said that 80% of hand injuries that pro football players suffer are finger injuries. And most of the time, you don't even hear about them because the players uh, return to the field pretty much next week. Can you just offer your insights and just those common finger injuries that are happening that it seems um, across positions? Sure. Um, one of the most common things we see is just a dislocated finger. And those are typically reduced on the field by the trainers. The trainers will come in and literally just pop it back in joint and typically manage them with just some buddy tape. And they oftentimes return the same game, uh, oftentimes within a few minutes of the injury occurring. And then one ad tremendous advantage these pro athletes have, though, is they're getting rehab constantly. So every single day they're going to practice. If there's an injured player, they're working with the training staff uh, to get back their motion, to get their swelling down. And I'm really blessed here in Charlotte. Uh, Pat Connors, our team physician, and Ryan Vermillion is our uh, Panthers head trainer. And those guys do a phenomenal job of just every day working with these athletes. So one of the differing factors of them and the weekend warrior is just that. A weekend warrior may go to therapy once a week for an hour, whereas these guys are getting hours of therapy every day. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the reasons they're able to get back to that performance level mm -hmm. so much faster than the general population. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. Is there anything that the general population could do to kind of mimic that? Or are you really only going to get that in that specialized setting? To that degree, you're only going to get it in that specialized setting. Okay. However, I do stress the importance of home exercise programs to patients and explain to them that difference. Mm -hmm. And then you do see people spending more time at home doing the exercises they're given rather than just setting that sheet of paper to the side and only doing it when they go see their therapist. Mm -hmm. So I think following those therapy guidelines and uh, doing the home programs mm -hmm. makes a tremendous difference in how fast uh, people can return to the activities they enjoy. Uh, I'm personally guilty of not following those home protocols. So <laughs> 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 
maybe do that a little bit more now that I've heard that. So that same study, it, it explained that the wrist, elbow, and forearm injuries can be a lot more severe. A forearm injury, I was surprised it could mean that somebody's benched for half a season. So just last month, Chicago Bears defensive lineman Akeem Hicks was placed on the reserved injured list um, after his major injury. Can you play uh, armchair surgeon and just kind of comment on his injury and his treatment? His, I haven't actually, so I haven't seen him, so I can't really comment specifically on his case. But uh, you're exactly right in terms of the generality of forearm fractures. Uh, That's an injury that's going to take a lot longer to get over than a simple finger fracture. But a lot of the wrist and forearm injuries really come down to uh, player position and how much stability we can achieve when we fix them. So if it's certain positions, such as take a a lineman, oftentimes after a broken bone, we typically wait at least two weeks for the skin to be healed. Mm -hmm. And then once the skin's healed, the bone is not healed yet. But if we can protect them in a cast, we'll do that. And we'll sometimes be able to let them play a little bit sooner in a cast. Other positions and other injuries, uh, you simply can't. So if we're worried that the wrong hit is going to refracture that arm, then we have to hold them until the bone's healed. Mm-hmm. And that bone healing typically takes about six to eight weeks, which in the context of the NFL is typically about half the season. Okay. And because, it, you know, the, this is so, their profession is so dependent on it, are you probably imaging them at more regular intervals than you would the average patient? Definitely. Um, particularly if you're at the point where you're deciding, can they go back to play or, be- or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, players that are on the cusp of being able to return, we're imaging at least once a week mm-hmm. to look for that healing. Mm-hmm. I think we have to mention Drew Brees and his aggressive recovery plan. I know we were ta- mentioning a little bit earlier that players are typically on the accelerated path. What can you comment on there? Yeah, so he had, and again, I haven't treated him specifically myself, but he had something we call a gamekeeper's injury or a skier's thumb where there's an important ligament on the inside of the thumb uh, that was torn and that was repaired. And those injuries do take, he's been out about uh, right at six weeks now, I think. Mm -hmm. And he has had a very accelerated program. Uh, There is a new technique we're adding to ligament repairs oftentimes called an internal brace, which is basically a strong suture tape that we can put over top of a repaired ligament to give it some additional stability. That has allowed us to take players that traditionally would have been put in a cast for six weeks and move them into braces and get them moving their joints earlier Mm -hmm. to try and regain that motion earlier while we're waiting for the ligament to heal. Interesting. And then it gives it a little bit more strength so that we feel a little bit more comfortable as physicians allowing them to return to play a little bit sooner than we would have in the past. And is that a relatively new procedure? The procedure of fixing the ligaments pretty much the same, but adding that internal mm-hmm. brace or adding that uh, fiber tape to it to help protect it is something we've really been doing more of in just the last few years, yes. And then just last year, Raheem Mostert of the San Francisco 49ers had what was described as a gruesome forearm break, um, but he's back. He played uh, this past week. Um, what is the takeaway there? The takeaway would be, number one, these players are incredibly resilient and incredibly impressive in terms of their motivation. And we've seen that time and time again from, quote unquote, gruesome injuries in these athletes to where the following season they're back and having uh, incredible seasons and dedicated medical staff, great trainers. And really, like I said earlier, I think hats off to the NFL for setting up a database like this, tracking their injuries and allowing the medical advancements to be made to help these players 
uh, not only get back to sport, but then hopefully long-term in life have less long-term consequences of having played the game. Just curious, is that database uh, made public at all just for fans who are interested or maybe even researchers who would take that data and mine it and and try to come up with No, as you can imagine, there's a lot of sensitivity behind that data uh, in terms of knowing Mm -hmm. uh, specific, you know, there'd be HIPAA violations as well. So that's, it's really Mm -hmm. only open Mm -hmm. to the researchers uh, that are part of those subcommittees. Okay, gotcha. And then taking it a little bit more broadly, and we can even go uh, beyond the sports medicine realm, what is one hand injury that often gets misdiagnosed or mistreated in sports? And what advice would you give both patients and general practitioners who might be the the frontline provider who's seeing that injury for the yeah, first time? Yeah, there's several of them. One we already touched on, and that's that scaphoid fracture. So the scaphoid bone is mm-hmm. located... If you go to the base of your thumb, between the base of your thumb and your wrist, right there is where your scaphoid's located, and it's the one that x-rays are oftentimes negative. So I think one huge piece of advice would be anytime you have a player or really just any individual who has a fall or an injury to their wrist and they're sore there, even if the x-rays are negative, that needs to be evaluated a second time about two weeks later, ideally by either a hand physician or an orthopedist familiar with those injuries uh, so that they're not missed. Because the consequences of missing that is really critical. We see people all the time who come in six months, one year later, and they had presented to an urgent care and were told it was nothing. And now they've got a bone mm-hmm. that never healed and may not even be salvageable and end up with a partially fused mm-hmm. wrist as a result. So that'd be one big one. Another injury that's uh, less common, but if you have a baseball player who has a check swing and has a pain in their palm or a golfer that hits a fat shot and they have pain in their palm, there's a specific bone called the hamate and there's what's called hamate hook fractures. And routine x-rays will miss those. And again, like the scaphoid, if they're missed, they can have significant long-term problems such as nerve damage or tendon ruptures that result from nearby structures rubbing against that bone that never healed right. So so probably always better to, if you're, you're having pain, to get it checked out and just make sure because there could be something underlying that could be missed on a regular exam. Yeah, and even to the point where if they'd had uh, one evaluation, say, at an urgent care or at an ER setting, mm-hmm. and they didn't see anything at that time, if someone's still hurting six weeks later, eight weeks later, it needs to be reevaluated. And that's where going to see either a hand specialist or at least an orthopedist with familiarity in treating hand injuries uh, is critical. Well, this has been extremely enlightening. Um, I've personally learned a lot about uh, the NFL uh medical society and what it's doing. And uh, I think it will be exciting to see once there's been a couple more years of of data and analysis, uh, what we learned specifically about the hand, wrist and elbow and forearm. um, And, you know, what are the correct precautions that we should be taking and how are we changing uh, player safety guidelines as a result? So um, it was great to get a kind of behind the scenes uh, look at that and then to see how that might eventually filter down to, you know, the broader patient base. Uh, so how can people, if they're interested in kind of keeping up to date on this and, and following your journey, uh, can they follow you on social media? How can they connect with you? Uh, just go to orthocarolina.com and we've got links uh, to me and to all of our physicians, uh, several other of which are also involved in the NFL as well. So orthocarolina.com would be an easy way for them to get in touch with us. Uh, any final thoughts before we sign off? You know, Vinny, I just appreciate the opportunity to do this with you. It was great. And hopefully people can learn a lot about uh, what 
how players are trying to be protected at the NFL. And then, like you said, the translatability of that to the general population. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.